Hi, and welcome to episode 131 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and today I'm thrilled to be bringing you my conversation with landscape painter Idris Murphy. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I'm recording this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Idris Murphy is one of Australia's leading landscape painters. Inspired early on by Matisse, he sees colour as the main game, and I got the impression that it was that element of his art that drives all else, and his incorporation of metallic paint adds an extra dimension to that. His is not a literal interpretation of the land, though. The traditional rules of landscape painting have long been discarded, and that, together with his admiration for the way Indigenous artists see the land, has led him to an individual perspective which is all his own. He also uses collage to brilliant effect, and you might be surprised when you hear about the challenges he has with that process. He's won the Gallipoli Art Prize, has had 40 solo shows and has been in countless group shows. His work is held in the National Gallery of Australia, the Art Gallery of New South Wales and other state and corporate collections. And I'm bringing you this interview at a time when a comprehensive survey show of his work titled Back Blocks is showing at the Drill Hall Gallery in Canberra. Curated by Gallery Director Terence Maloon, the exhibition looks back at the last 30 years of his 50-year career and it runs until 16 October 2022. It'll then travel to Orange Regional Gallery and arrive in Sydney at SH Irvine in January 2023, which is also when a monograph will be published, something I'm really looking forward to reading. Idris is represented by King Street Gallery in Sydney, and all the works we talk about are on the website talkingwithpainters.com. I met Idris at his studio in Cornell in southern Sydney, a stone's throw from Botany Bay, where we also shot some video, and I'll be uploading that onto the YouTube channel in the coming weeks. You know, a couple of days ago, I put on my Instagram story that um, I was going to be interviewing you. I got so many messages from people. I got all these messages. What were they doing, swearing at you or saying, (laughs) God, don't get him on? I, you, I knew you were popular, but I didn't know how popular you were. Well, I don't know about popular, but I, I, I've done. I've been teaching for on and off for a long time. I suppose I've got a lot of students. And- well, obviously, I mean, a lot of people know you, but a lot of people love you. So, I, I what I love to do, and I think for people, for listeners, well, they are going to want to hear about this, and they want to hear from like from the beginning. You know what memories artists have of their childhood and art in their childhood, and. You know, oh, where they became, they came from an artistic family, that sort of thing. Yeah, they're not my family. I, um, and I was born um, on Royal Women's on Paddington, but but we lived in Bankstown until I was seven. And I lived with my parents and my grandmother and her father. So there were a lot of generations in, in a house that my grandfather built after the First World War. We lived on the converted veranda, so it was bloody hot and bloody cold. (laughs) That's the main things I can remember. Um, But we had a big backyard with lots of veggies and chooks and trees and stuff. That was great. But we we moved from there when I I probably was, I don't know, I'm not sure, probably nine or something, eight or nine, we moved out to um, where my parents were building a house in... 
I think they built it in 58 or something like that. So I don't know the exact time range. But basically we moved to Caringbar, Cronulla area and, you know, I moved from uh, – well, I remember going for about my first or second surf with some mates and I think I was the only guy that came up with his hair still intact because it was a big, you know, bill cream hanger in those days. It was, sort of, it was stuck to your head. Yeah, basically because <laughs> I'd – you know, I'd come from, yeah, it was, I don't know what they were, rockers, no, widgies, I don't know, whatever it was. It oh, was yeah. a kind of, you know, it was pretty rough in Bankstown. And, you know, it was, you know, it was rock and roll and big fins on Cadillacs and whatever you could get older that you drove around making a lot of noise and, yeah, all that Trying stuff. to get the girls' attention. Yeah, except it was really my brother. He was the one that got into fights and trouble. I was a bit more, a bit too young probably, but anyway. So moving to Cronulla, to the water, to the coast, as it were, was, was a big... it Was it like a surfy culture back then in the oh, 60s? Yeah. Oh, gosh, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you didn't surf, I mean, I, at school I was sort of, Good at swimming, so I got away with that because I got I, I trained quite extensively for a while because they thought I was going to be a really great, you know, swimmer, and I hated it. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> I hated getting up at six o'clock in the morning and getting my ankles tied together with a bloody rustic band, so that I had to kick and having your fingers trod on at the end of the pools because you wanted to get out and they wouldn't let you. And oh, my God. I mean, it was brutal as far as I was concerned. I, uh, After a couple of years of that heavy training, you know, swimming a couple of kilometres and then going to school, no, not for me. Oh, so that was something that they hoped for you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was, good but they hoped for everybody it was any yeah, good. And I, you know, yeah. I'd gone to the state and in running and swimming. Oh, I mean, that's oh, the only man. thing that saved me at school because, you know, being from Bankstown, that was pretty tricky. But I, 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 we've got some great friends that I still have from that time. And I'm living just down the road from Cronulla High School where I went. So when you talk about Cronulla High School, did they have art? Is that what you would Yeah, Yeah, I did. I, I, I think the only thing I passed in was English, art, um, and I don't know, something else. I mean, basically, you know, I remember going to what in those days you used to send you off to see what you could be good at, you know, whatever they called that where you have to go along and I think, well, you could be, well, I was told I could be a pastry cook. <laughs> no offence to pastry cooks. If, if it had been in France, that would have been a compliment. Um, <laughs> or what else was it they said I could do? I don't know, work on the roads. Or I mean, that wasn't very complimentary. Oh, right. So it's like a careers advice. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. I mean, and I was dyslexic. So, I mean, you know, I had to – I remember with science, I passed science, and the way I passed it was that all the notes that someone else had taken, I, I, I rewrote all the whole book – rewrote it by hand and I wrote it, um, printed it. Um, that's the only way I could memorise anything to do so I could pass the science exam. No, I mean, no one knew what, I mean, no one knew what dyslexic was when I was at school. They just thought you were dumb. Yeah, must have been a struggle. It yeah, must have been pretty tricky. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, I joined the cadets and did all sorts of stupid things. So um, mm. all that was kind of interesting. I, you know, I mean, I had good parents. Uh, that, you know, they let me sort of do whatever I wanted to do. So that was great. 
So does that mean like when you're at home you were d- drawing and that sort I of thing? I drew all the time. I drew in other people's social studies books or whatever it was called, science, history. I did all their illustrations for them because Brian Prince, as a friend of mine still is, we went we, – I was – when I left school at 16, um, I – I used to go fishing with their family down to Lake Erkenbean and Maureen, uh, Brian's sister, were going down in the car and she said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I've, I don't know, I like the bush, so I've enrolled at agricultural college. I think I want to be a farmer or something, I don't know. Because my dad was a forest officer, so I had lots of time in the bush. And um, what, what is a forest officer? Well, basically work for, in those days it was a bit like, I guess, now working for National Parks and Wildlife, really. So, but it was more of a government thing where you, Dad used to gazette roads and go out to places that no white fellas had been and look at what trees were there and what you could chop down and what you needed and telegraph poles for the army or the you know something for you know it was just a government kind of thing. But he was in the bush and he was a country boy. He lived in Kempsey, but born up in Kempsey. And Dad took us fishing. We were always going out and camping and fishing along the coast. So. Uh, I what did he that. think about you drawing and all that stuff? Uh, well, I, to be honest, I don't think they really understood any of it any time, really. Um, but, I mean, the old man said to me once, look, I don't care what you do. Um, I don't care if you're a street sweeper as long as that's what you want to do and you do it well. Mm. That was pretty good. So I had good parents um, and, um, and and Dad dragging us around the bush and stuff was important, you know. But... Coming out here to to uh, the Shire, um, that was um, that was a change of um, Bill Cream, as it were. <laughs> Do you feel like you belong here now? Ah, uh, artists are funny characters. I I always no, not really. I mean, I I love the the bays, and I used to go sailing and on my own and uh, fishing and stuff. Yeah, no, I, you know, once once I found out there was an art school, once Maureen said, when I asked her what she was doing, she said, I'm at the National Art School doing teacher training to be teach art. I said, what's an art school? I didn't know about bloody art school. So, so she told me and I happened to, um, in fact, my mother took me. She dragged me up to Guy Me TAFE. It wasn't and that you do the introductory year in those days and they sat me down and said draw this and I drew it and about 10 minutes later the guy come around had a look at my drawings and tapped me on the shoulder and says you're in. Really? Yep that's how it worked and so I started at the art school five years you know it was Guy Mead um, then um, Cogra and then three years at the National Art School in the city. And so what was that like? Uh, It was fabulous. I mean I I knew when I started, well, certainly when I went to the National Art School, there was all these other long-haired dicks um, <laughs> and musicians and writers and crazy people and artists. I was I felt at home. It saved my life. It saved me being, I don't know, probably crime would have been my next thing. <laughs> I think I would have been a very cunning, you know, manipulator of other people in order to get a lot of money. <laughs> I, mean, I can't see that in you, Idris. Ah, uh, well, no, maybe not. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's it's my good Christian background coming out where I couldn't do it anyway, I suppose. But I, I guess, 
I guess it was. I um, suppose it's, sorry, go on. No, no, I was going to say it's probably, I mean, when you say that you struggled with the sort of reading and all yeah. that, I mean, that's probably why you have that view that if, oh, yeah. you didn't, if you didn't have art, what would you do? Oh, well, that's right. It would have been sport or art. They were the only two things that, and and I didn't really know anything about art schools until I was told about them. And and once, but once I was at art school, I knew that's where I should be. I mean, there was there's no doubt about that. And and you know, uh, you know, the, the, there was encouragement there from other artists who were, you know, major artists. Kevin Connor was very good. Um, moral support um, is an influence that you get. From other artists, if you get a, you know, Lloyd Rees gives you a pat in the back and says, look, this is not bad, keep going, sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, then you know you're in the right spot. I suppose racing car drivers have the same thing. Someone says, hey, you're really good at this. Why don't you come and, you know, musicians certainly, a lot of the black musicians, they just started going listening to other musicians and thinking, yeah, I like, I like the saxophone. I, I, I'm going to play that. And sometimes someone says, hey, you do all right. I'd come up on stage and have a go at this. Yeah. Oh, it's so true. I reckon encouragement is one of the most important things when you're starting out in Absolutely. anything. Absolutely. You know. Absolutely, yeah. But, I mean, to get it from Lloyd Rees and Kevin Connor is pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, <laughs> uh, Colin Lancey's got, you know, bless his heart, and gone now, but he's got a show on at the National Art School at the moment. And, and people like that um, were just enormously supportive. I mean... You know, you, you always think of different artists who are absolutely tied up in what you have done and are doing, you know, and, and lots of great artists come to mind. But there's sort of influence where you're really influenced by someone and you copy them, as it were, and try to make work a bit like that until you find out that you've got to go somewhere else. And then there's other people who just give you support, and as a young artist, that support is really important. Um, yeah, it's not as if you wanted to paint like them. No, no. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, yeah. I mean, I painted some very bad Matisses when I lived in London and I realised a couple of things that I wasn't Matisse and that wasn't the way I was going. But I learned a lot about colour, you know, and when I had a studio in France or a couple of times had studios in France, um, I could read about Matisse sitting in front of Matisse. Wow, you know, how incredible. That's really fantastic. Yeah, well, talking about London, mm. I mean, you you were you awarded a scholarship that, that allowed you to do that, yep. to go to Europe. Can you yep. tell me a bit about that whole experience? Yeah, well, well goodness, my wife was a dancer um, and um, she was doing classical ballet at the time and we'd... I think we just got married. She was 19, I think. And um, she was told to go and do some um, auditions just to get used to auditioning. So she rocked into a musical, um, I think it was Irina, and they she danced and they said, okay, can you sing? And she said, well, sort of. I have, you're supposed to prepare something. She didn't know. She's just saying happy birthday or something. <laughs> And they said, you, you got a job. Oh, my God. So she went to Melbourne and I followed down to Melbourne after I'd had a, my first show at Macquarie Galleries and packed up my bloody old VW, whatever it was, E-type thing and <laughs> dragged down there. I, I remember stopping halfway down and servicing the car because it was 
fluffing and not doing very well. Anyway, did all that, got there. Um, and um, so we, we lived in Paran for, I don't know, a year. And at that time I started to, to paint down there and the there was a um, travelling scholarship. Um, the money was put up by Keith and Dame Elizabeth Murdoch and I put in and I won it. And I... I was gobsmacked, really, and especially a Sydney boy winning a, a Melbourne establishment art prize. Yeah, and and the the greatest thing, it really, I actually, it it's what art prizes should work like. You you couldn't put your name on it. You had to have a a, a nom de brush, as I would call it, nom de plume or whatever. Um, and you didn't weren't allowed to know who who the judges were. That's a great idea. Yeah. It's really the way they should work them if they're going to have art prizes. Anyway, so that was kind of interesting and... Um, oh, so can we backtrack a second? Yep. Because you just said you had your first show at Macquarie Galleries. Yeah. Now that is pretty major, and I think that was shortly after you finished yeah. National Art School. I was, was I just graduated and I got a show. I mean, look, I was incredibly naive, you know. I mean, you know, I'd come from Bankstown. That's not the cultural heart of anything, Um but you know, I mean, I went to art school, sure, and you know, I, I, you know, had art history, and I met artists, and I'd been to lots of shows, and you know, the galleries and all the rest of it. But it takes quite a long time for all that to kind of sink in. So, you know, I, I, I think it was mainly Kevin Connor taking me down to meet Mary Turner, who's gone long now. But um, Mary was very nice and said, look. Yes, the work's rather good, and, and why don't you come in? And Lloyd Reese is coming in tomorrow. Why don't you come in and have a cup of tea? So I sure knocked <laughs> in, and and Mary very nicely introduced me to Lloyd Reese, and Lloyd having a look at some of my drawings. Oh, so that was the first time you met him. Hmm. So I didn't you... know who. I mean, you know, Lloyd Reese. I mean, I'd heard of him. I'd been to a show of his. But that's all. I mean, God, you know, bloody naive. I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, I got the first. I went to an Ian Fairweather exhibition a bit later that year, um, and uh, I was in there. It's an opening night, and I said to this dude next to me, uh, "Hi, yeah, my name's Idris. What's your name?" Sort of thing. And he said, "Oh, my name's Patrick." And I said, "Patrick, what are you doing?" He said, "Oh, I do a bit of writing." And that was it. I didn't know who was Patrick White. I never, I never read anything of Patrick. I never knew anything about Patrick White. <laughs> well, that's fair enough too, you know. Yeah, I guess so. I was yeah, young. especially that age. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah oh, so, that's so funny. So, did you get to know him? Did you ever? See no, him no, no, I didn't. Um, I, I, quite a few other uh, artist friends knew Patrick, and I heard he was pretty tough on them. Um, yeah. But no, I, I, I've always. Well, I can't now, but I always tried to keep out of all that stuff. I found it at one level really disconcerting and I found it, um, I don't know, I just found it was full of all sorts of fakes and phonies as well mm. as some extraordinary people. And, and you know, look, after that, you know, down to Melbourne, won that scholarship that gave me... And Glenis to money to go overseas. Uh, I, I remember it was. I mean, I don't know, it was sixteen thousand bucks or something. It was a hell of a load of dough. I mean, I'd never. You know, we were living on ninety three dollars a week. That was our income between the two of us at one stage. I remember. Um, but yeah, look, 
it was kind of interesting. Um, I didn't know until, oh gosh, 15, 20 years later who judged the, the, um, the art prize, which was rather nice because I, I was talking to Peter Pinson, who's, who's, who's dead now, Peter, um, and I talked with Peter and we were talking about scholarships and younger painters and all this sort of stuff. And I said, you know, I never really found out who judged that travel art prize. And she, he said, well, I know. It was, was me and, and Fred Williams. How amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so that was kind and of And do you remember what you put in for that? I do. Um, I've destroyed one of those pictures recently. I, I burnt it. And two of the other pictures are in – they're basically – well, they're dancers. I was married okay. to a dancer. And then two other pictures which were much more landscape-orientated. And um, a friend of mine owns one of them and it still looks okay. So, Can you see any of your current work in that work? Uh, I think I do, yeah. I mean, I just didn't know what I was doing before. I mean, and, you know, I I had to go overseas and, I mean, you know, the, I mean, I'd never seen a real Van Gogh. I've never seen a real Matisse. I mean, you know, there's long stories about that. I mean, um, and, and, you know, living in London, going to the National Gallery, the Tate, Big exhibitions of major artists that changed the whole ball game. That, yeah, it yeah. must have been a huge eye opener. Uh, it was, it was, and uh, even just living in a different country. Oh I yeah, mean, taking yourself out of the everyday. Yep, yep. We had to start all over again. Luckily, we made some great friends, Andrew and Penny Carnegie. Who Andrew went to the Royal Academy School. He had great teachers. He had so much more knowledge about the art world and art than I ever did. Luckily for me, we got become great friends and they were living in, they just had their first child, they were living in a council flat and we stayed with them and we, we had a bed behind their couch in the only <laughs> main room in the apartment and we lived there till we found some accommodation in Golders Green, I think it was, so... But um, Andrew and Penny were great. But Andrew really, I mean, he um, he taught me how to look at paintings and that was the biggest eye-opener. I mean, I had to I, – I, I remember just recently talking to Terence Maloon and I was saying to Terence that the first Van Gogh picture, which actually I couldn't remember what its title was, was such a searing, ecstatic – presence of a painting and it was a, a moment of shock and disbelief and all sorts of crazy things because I realised that, hey, this was the real thing. This mm. was real paint on. I could even see it left the canvas coming through and it was so in your face and amazing. And and I just, um, I just realised the worst of it was I think it was humiliating because I realised that, shit, I didn't know anything. I had to this this meant I have to start again. And Andrew said, You're right. Now you've had that experience. Now you've fallen in love. Yeah. Now you've got to start you know, that this is where it starts. It's interesting you say Van Gogh though, because obviously your 
method of pain is very different. Oh, totally. I mean, you're very, use very thin layers, yeah. and and he's a very impasto yeah, sort of absolutely. painter. Yeah. So it wasn't. So it must not have just been the the way he painted. No, no, no. It's got nothing to do with that. It's to do with the presence of the picture. It's something in George Stein, the great academic, wrote a book called Real Presence. Great pictures. I mean, you know, it's like great Shakespearean sonnets. I mean, he's been dead 350 years. You read them properly or have someone read them out loud and he's he's there in a sense. I mean, it, the, the presence of the artwork, um, if it's good, that's what you want. That's what you aim for. That's, that's what makes going to great galleries and standing in front of great pictures. I mean... I mean, you could name a buddy lot more pictures than that 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 would have astounded me. Tish and you know, I didn't. What the hell's all this about? You know, I don't. I didn't know the 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 Greek history or the where it was coming from. But I didn't have to. In one sense, I mean, that helps. But you know, um, and and because the dyslexic thing, I never read a book until I was fourteen, um, and so and then I've become. Voracious, I think the word might be reader now. Um, Maybe more than you would have been. Oh yeah, there's no doubt about. It. I mean, the, the uh, quite a lot of artists and musicians that I know, some are more dyslexic than me by half. Um, it's been a real bane of their life, but it's also made them think differently. You know, what, you know, there's there's some there's a little book on on dyslexia. And, you know, you've got lots of, you know, Buddy, they reckon Napoleon was dyslexic and Picasso and I don't know. Yeah. But but there's a kind of different way of seeing things. Oh, definitely. And, I mean, there's a number of quite a few people in the podcast, yeah. the artists that I've interviewed. Oh, I'm sure. Um, so it's not, a, it's not surprising that um, that can be hand in hand with really good visual art. And and so you lived in in England for a few years. Yeah, four, pretty much four years, yeah. and then sometime in France after that as well. Had a studio, the Cité Internationale des Arts, yeah, which is a fabulous place. It's right on the Seine, overlooking Ile Saint Louis. It's just bloody marvelous. And you get a little studio and a, a one one ring cooker, and you know it's pretty basic, but it's fabulous. And we were, you know, we were just. You know, young marrieds, and we 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 lived in a 14th century building overlooking the Seine, oh, and that was the incredible. studio. And you know, I could go to the Louvre. I could go to Buddy Pompidou Centre. You know, I mean, yeah. so paint. did you do that sort of thing every day? Like, yep. were you looking at art? You betcha. It must have been amazing for you, if you you know to. You're such a fan of Matisse to see, to be in Paris uh, and to see those works up close. It was well. I mean, it, it yeah. I mean, it was. I mean, it, it and and you could see his influences. You could see what he and Picasso why they kind of worked against each other and, and sometimes worked together. Hilary Sperling's book, The Unknown Matisse taught me even more stuff when I read that recently or a few years ago um, I thought well she I thought I knew something about Matisse I learned a hell of a lot more about Matisse and Picasso and that whole period yeah. but you know um, I remember uh, Miro was still 
alive at that stage when we were there. Um, I remember going to some soiree, which, again, I had no idea what was going on, really, because my French was so appalling. Um, but Miro was there for about 10 minutes. Oh, and, wow. And, of course, you know, that was a big deal for lots of people. And, you know, you could go to um, people's homes, which occasionally did, and they had a real painting from that period, you know, some impressionist painting. I think, wow, well, you know, and that had been in the family for, you know, 100 years or something. Oh, how incredible. Yeah, all that stuff. So, well, so this is happening. Yeah. And then in 1980 you come back to Australia. Mm-hmm. Was it hard to get back into the scene, to get into the well, art Well, I world? mean, I was sort of, because I left young, and, and really was never in the scene. No one knew who in the hell I was anyway, which was the best thing that really ever happened to me. I mean, all that scholarship and swelled head stuff, it's a disaster for young artists, all that. I mean, it's a disaster. And writers. So basically I came back. Um, I got a job teaching at Wollongong TAFE. I just taught part-time for, there for a while. But it was, yeah, it was... It was Pretty disconcerting, and um, the only thing I knew was that I wanted to get back to the bush. The landscape, European landscape, I mean, it was not up to it, and I just wanted to get back to the bush, and so the first lots of, when I was teaching at Wongong, I used to drive down, teach, stop on the way back and draw in the landscape, and then... I started to make bad Sid Nolans and bad Fred Williams and bad anybody else that was any good. Um, <laughs> so you decided at that point you wanted to do landscape oh, painting? Yeah. yeah, I don't think there was any doubt at all that in the end that's where I'd end up because that's the only real thing I loved. Yeah, right. It was the only thing I had real affinity for. And I was no, I mean, you know, I, I could have painted other things and I did. I mean, you know, I painted. Pictures of chairs and interiors and, you know, people to some degree. Um, but, um, no, the landscape was the, the thing. Mm. Yeah. I was just looking at one of my paintings here. I'm just giggling a bit because because I'm doing this catalogue and book and stuff and you're going through stuff that you're lucky enough to have people write about the work at different times. I remember John MacDonald said... I'd forgotten this and, 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 of course, it's coming up again or something. Uh, uh, someone read me the quote. He said, um, these paintings look like they've been painted with a broom. I think I read that. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and I think, yeah, some of them still look like they're painted with a broom. Um, uh, yeah, and that he'd, what did I do? I'd robbed the cosmetic counter at... Um, um, at a department store. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and he said it, uh, <laughs> beautiful, ugly, ugly, beautiful paintings. Yeah. Um, I think which I, I thought was too. the greatest compliment in a way at that stage because I'm really interested in how apparent contradictory things somehow, uh, they can be just contradictory, but they can also somehow envelop ideas and, and the truth of things, if you like. Um, which are pretty interesting. Mm, anyway. Yeah. So you mean contradictory as in it can be beautiful and ugly? Yeah, yeah. Or or that, you know, I mean, a lot of the heroes in uh, artists that I have had and still have are artists who have brought things. I mean, Philip Guston's a good example, okay? So 
Guston painted very beautiful abstract paintings, but um, partly because I think he was Jewish, partly because he was, you know, surrounded by war and all sorts of things and he was a sensitive dude, um, he realised that there was something lacking in those pictures that only could come from the world around, you know, people and things and objects and stuff. And so he started to paint pictures which were very figurative. But but what he'd done, I mean, I suppose this is a bit of a cliche, but what he'd done, is because he was interested in cartooning and he had a couple of people when he was a kid that he loved, these strange black and white, you know, drawings that cartoons are or became anyway, um, he he took on that role of taking something that Americans would have called lowbrow and taking it and making it highbrow. I mean, so they're, they're nearly contradictory things, you know. Um, there are other American artists have have done something like it, but he did it in such a way. And it cost him his deal or his reputation for a while uh, and yet out of that has come some of the best American painting, as far as I'm concerned, of the 20th century. Yeah. So. And I suppose that's all risk-taking as well. Oh, it is. Uh, of course it is. And and, and without that risk-taking, uh, I mean, it's one of the – it, I think it's one of the problems. I mean, thinking about it a lot, it's one of the problems that Australian art had. It's because you, you weren't confronted by the great pictures enough, you know, um, to 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 have to really reconcile yourself with, you know, can I do that? Is it possible for me to do something with that sort of weight and presence? And and if it is, you know, how in the hell do you get to that? You know, and and it means you've got to look at a lot of great pictures. Yeah. You know, um, and you've got to, in a sense, be open to them and take the risk of you burning up on the way there. I mean, I. You know, if you read again, we talked about Sperling's book, um, The Unknown Matisse. I mean, she talks about that Picasso and, and Matisse and a lot of the fine artists that came out of that period. You know, I mean, she, one of the things I had to laugh about was at one stage, two, I can't remember who they were, which is shame on me really, but um, they, they, they were friends of Matisse's and um, to go to an opening, they only had one corduroy suit that they could wear between them, so they had to, you know, flip a coin to who would wear the suit and go to the opening because the <laughs> other, they couldn't do it together because they had no money. And Matisse taught until it was fifty odd, um, you know, you know, and 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 on the the, the downside, uh, Rembrandt and Velasquez uh, um, died in the poorhouse. Yeah. I mean, this is it's a hard tough. To believe, this is it? a tough business. It's it's all right when you're dead. <laughs> yeah, you know. I know. They would have liked a bit of that when they were alive. That's right. Well, I can remember um, Lloyd Reeves saying, you've got to outlive the bastards. That's exactly yeah. what he said. <laughs> and, and I guess what he meant was those people who knocked you or the work or thought you weren't worth, you know, training or yeah. supporting or, or whatever it was. And, you know, and he did. It's not true of many artists. Many artists have died and and either very late in their career or not at all had any kind of support or, I mean, there was obviously historically, you know, there was people who worked for the church or worked, you know, were painting for kings and queens. They they got supported. But, you know, what percentage was that? 
Yeah, and, and what, I suppose the thing is, in that circumstance where you don't get that support, the drive has to be strong enough to get you through. Yeah, and and that that yeah, I mean that's the tricky business about it is that that is not enough either. Whatever it is, I don't know, um, but I know that risk taking um, and trying um, recognizing that you you got to keep pushing the boundaries is I mean Annie Dillard the American nature writer she talks about it in terms of writers um, and I really like her, her her easy to read philosophical kind of thinking but she's mostly seen as a nature writer and she won Pulitzer surprise when she was young and she's probably I don't know she's probably my age I'd like to meet her sometime but anyway she talks about the, the writing life a bit like a tennis court. So so you're playing, that's that's the, the, the rules. You've got to play within that, that thing. And if you're really good at it, you don't want to just win a point. You want to win a point by putting the ball on the very edge between out and in to win the point, the match and the game. That's what you want. Just to win a point. Yeah. It's the edge. That's what you're after. Yeah, right. It's pretty what tricky. Mean? What do you mean? Well, it, it's because you're trying to, in, in, the, in the thinking of the, the, the tennis court, if you like, you, you're really trying to extend the game, if you can call it a game, uh, to, to the, the extreme of that, the possibilities of what you're embarking on. So, so you know, if 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 you want to be a great writer, then you've got to do the hard yards. You've got to read a lot of stuff, and you've got to make a lot of mistakes, and you've got to keep making mistakes to learn from them. And if you if you if you think you've made it, then you're in deep manure. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah. and history's full of that. I mean, when I had used to have my master's students, I often would give them uh, different philosophers' take on fame and fortune, okay? And one of them was a Greek philosopher, and there's quite a few Greek philosophers I'm realising in my old age, but I can't remember who this was. But I remember the saying was great. He said, um, fame is a poison that should be taken in small doses when old. You know, and you yeah. know, and and I mean, you know, that goes back a long way. So the the problem of dealing with your chosen field and trying to make it really the best you can do, which is a bit of a cliche, but in a sense, that's what it's about, is fraught. Mm. So, do you think that there should be a healthy um, amount of self doubt? Oh yeah, of course. I mean. You can't have faith in yourself without doubt. There's the two apparent contradictions. Yeah, of course. Um, and, 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 you know, um, going back and standing in front of a great painting, that's why Frank Arbuck, bless his heart, still painting at 90-something or other, wanders down to the National Gallery to look at the Rembrandts. He doesn't get, he's not wanting to try to paint like a Rembrandt, he just wants to see what really great art is, and am I am I up to that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, you know, it sounds pompous and and stuff, but in fact, really, 
you know, I don't want stuff left that's half thought through when I'm dead. I mean, what's the point of it? I mean, you know, yeah, you've got to make a living, but it's much more than that. And great pictures, great poetry, great writing, they all talk to that great philosophy, theology, it's mm. all, you know. Mm. I mean, I've had, I argued about this um, with different artists over the time, but, I mean, you know, in the end, it is the big questions. That's what ma- that's what matters. And, of course, we're living in a, a period now of celebrity where it's all bloody bullshit and thin, you know, intellect and no inquiry and, I mean, not all together, but, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, I know. Well, it's, it's um, we're sort of seeing so many things and it, we're, we're seeing so much so quickly. Yes, we're inundated with yeah, imagery. Yeah, 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 it's true. It is. I mean, that makes it even harder in one sense because, you know, um, uh, John Berger, I think we mentioned that before, talks about, um, uh, uh, I mean, he's a great writer, but he, he always painted and drew. And so, you know, going out into the landscape, as he says, like a 19th century painter, you know, like Monet or Cezanne or me, you know, with the not that I'm in that same group, but, you know, I go out with my hat and a bloody easel or something to sit on and paint. Um, And he's um, talking about that in the context of him going out with a mate painting and realising that he's looking at the landscape. But in his head, he's got more pictures in his head than Pizarro or... Suzanne or anyone else who painted the landscape have ever had seen. Yeah, that's right. So we're bombarded with this stuff. So, so to sort of swim through that is is difficult. Well, also you can be a bit paralysed as an artist if you think about that too much. Oh, you can. I mean, I mean, yeah. That's that's why I suppose when I was young and being naive, kind of helped. Um, You know, I mean, yeah, I did. I mean, I just. I was fortunate that Andrew Carnegie who uh, and Penny, who have been great friends of ours for many years, that Andrew was so um, supportive, knowing two things, I suppose. He knew I had some ability, but he knew I didn't know what I was talking about, you know, and he stuck with me and said, no, nah, let's go and look at paintings, let's go and have a look at... I mean, I tell my students about this times where, where you know, because I use quite a lot of black now, but... Um, Andrew rang me up and said, this is when we first met, we're both a long-haired arty gits, and he said, um, uh, let's meet at the National Gallery and we're going to go and look at Black. And I said, who is this guy really? I mean, I haven't known him that long and we're going to look at Black. I told him this story a few years ago and he'd forgotten all about it. But so I thought, Black's Black. I buy Black in a tube, I squeeze it out, I mix it with other stuff, it's Black. And so he took me into the National Gallery and we went and had a look at... Rembrandt and De Hook and Caravaggio and whoever else was painting with a lot of darks. And I come out just was like, how come I didn't know this before? You know, there's blacks that float and the blacks that sink. There are transparent, translucent, opaque blacks. There are warm blacks. There are cool blacks. There are blacks that sing with other colours and others that are dull. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's like the old I know, ad. black oil, is a very interesting Yeah, oils topic. ain't oils. Black ain't black. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I must say it's it's always interesting to hear artists about how they get their blacks. Well, how do you how do you Well, I use quite a lot of metallic blacks now. Oh, okay. And 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 so I mix them with ordinary blacks and this um, Dutch company that I get my 
paints through, mostly through Parkers, that they they um, have some great black, some with actual material mixed in with it. Um, but they're, they're really – and then I can mix them together, get other blacks and, and silver with, you know, standard kind of lamp black or whatever, whoever makes anything, you know. Mm, so, mm. yeah, I mean – and then you mix, you know, warm blacks, cool blacks, flat blacks, glossy blacks, yeah. you know, metallic blacks, non matte blacks. So all that stuff, yeah. yeah. That was interesting because we were talking about um, earlier about the, your use of metallic paint. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a bit about that and about how it started? Yeah. And, and well, well, uh, basically, uh, I, I mean, I, I mean, there's two little parts. To it. One was that when I worked for my dad, he had a, a dry cleaning business. Um, he had a boiler that kept everything going. Okay, and all the pipes were were steel and they rusted. So the only way you keep them from rusting up in the steam and everything in the boiler house was you had this stuff called silver frost and you painted it on the pipes and anything that would rust, right? And I kind of liked it. I mean, I was, you know, I was at art school. Oh, this is interesting stuff, you know, paint mm-hmm. over everything, painted anything on the wall. And um, so I didn't really pay any more attention to that. But when I started to paint in the landscape seriously, particularly when I went to the outback, I started to see gold and silver and all this stuff reflected in the, the tree trunks and in the water, and I'm thinking, hey, what are these English guys doing? They weren't, what were they looking at? Well, they weren't looking at the same thing. That was the truth of it. And I just basically bought some silver paint and played around with that. But then I realised that, um, and I did this purposely for a while, I mixed silver paint used as my white So I mixed my colours with silver and so I got these crazy metallic other colours which, you know, just weren't available. You couldn't buy it. And also historically there was no precedent. Matisse didn't have metallics. He didn't have acrylics. I mean I had horrible stuff when I was at art school um, when acrylics weren't acrylics. They were PVA or something, and it was horrible stuff. The yellow was appalling. I never used yellow for years because of the crappy stuff that was. But once they started to make good acrylic paints that were safer and, you know, but they also did things which oil paint doesn't do. I mean, dries really quickly. It, you can do lots of glazing, all sorts of stuff. But, mm. I mean, you know, you get Did you always to- use acrylics? No, I, I, I learnt um, in, with oil paint initially, Um but I think trying to work out when I was at Oscar what Matisse was trying to do, I I couldn't quite work out how he's using his oil paint. I mean, later on I learned it easily. But, um, yeah, no, it, it was basically that the acrylics were versatile in a way that oil paint wasn't. And one of the nice things about them is that when I put stuff down, I haven't got very long to play with it. With, 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 I mean, the beauty of oil paint in some sense is you can scrape it back, you can rework it, you can keep it going, it can go for days. Where once acrylic's dry, that's it. Mm. But in fact, that possibility of stumbling is actually a very useful kind of tool. What, what happens is that you, once you put it down, you've either got to paint it over and start again or something happens that's worth saving. Um, so, so it's just it's just you set up things eventually to keep you 
um, on your toes so that you don't get used to making the same painting over and over again. Well, that's interesting because I wonder whether that is also a bonus because you – well, you're – I see your work as being a plein air practice and the studio practice. I mean, yeah. which I think for a lot of landscape painters, that's the case. Yeah. But in the, with your plein air painting, I could imagine the use of acrylics must be really beneficial. Well, in- it it can be. I mean, when I first came back from England, what I did was, after painting bad Sydney Islands and bad other major artists. Uh, um, I realised that there was something I couldn't deal with in, in, in oil paint. And so basically what I did was started to do monoprints and I used oil paint and printer's ink and stuff and I took, I made a box, which I still got somewhere, with perspex on it and took rollers and ink and stuff and I started to do monoprints in front of the landscape, if you like. And what it allowed me to do was work on thinnish paper, I could work on the front and the back. I could be absolutely ruthless, just saving only the things that were any good. And I could do a lot quickly. So when you say you're doing monoprints in the landscape, yeah. what you would press it onto another... Yeah, yeah I would take so- out rollers and I would put ink and paint on the perspex and then I'd put the paper on that and I'd roll the back of it and I'd take it back over and draw on it and then put it back and draw on that again and all sorts of farting around and playing with things. Um, And um, that allowed me to kind of start to see how thin, transparent kind of colour would work and what I was after. Um, Yeah, I mean, it just allowed me to try to find things in that I did in my particular life. I mean, you know, in some senses, you, 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 your, it's a terrible term, really, style, your, your approach is often governed by the kind of material that you're using. Mm. So if you're using really thick oil paint, then, of course, it has a viscosity, it has a sort of luster. There's certain lovely things about oil paint um, and it takes forever to dry and all that sort of stuff, okay? Um, and that has often, for a contemporary artist, built, meant building up quite extreme surfaces or thickness or whatever, um, which I didn't want to do because it, it, I couldn't draw easily over big lumps of oil paint or if it half dried and all that sort of stuff. I wanted to have a, a linear kind of drawing thing that was happening in the painting like Matisse. Yeah. So, I mean, he, you know, basically he used very thin oil paint on fine canvas and could do that and had an assistant to wipe it off when it didn't work. Oh, yeah, right. Is that what he did? Yeah. yeah. I mean, in <laughs> yeah, fact, there's a yeah. couple of really great paintings that he did where I mean, I think, um, again, Sperling talks about this and, you know, he would come in and paint a chair and the window and maybe a figure on that and then he'd realise that blue against that yellow looks bad, the wrong blue. And he'd say, well, it's still wet, it's oil paint. And he'd say to her, look, I'll be back tomorrow. Will you take clean all that area off, right? And she would clean it off. In this case, she cleaned it off. And the stain of the blue and the stain of the yellow which she cleaned off, the stain was a very different blue because the white had come through, very different blue than the the blue that he'd used, and these two colours just sang together, right? So all he did then, I mean, outrageous 
Now, you did this. Just picked up some black, drew around the figure in the chair, put his name on it, and that was it. And you can see that picture. And then he did a copy of that as a sort of a half-hearted joke in another picture on, on the wall. So, But, yeah. <laughs> that's Well, that, that leads me to the whole question of accidents and, and sure. like the unexpected. Yep. Um, is that something that you want to encourage in your work? Or oh, to, look, I, I think, I mean, it depends how, how you look at it. And it's been a debate I've had with myself for a long time and, and the people I read, I suppose, and it comes down to all sorts of things, philosophy, theology. But at one level, there's a kind of thing that happens, which, is, I mean, if scientists would call it serendipity, right? And, you know, they're chasing something down along A, B, C, D, you know, for years and they, it, they get nowhere and they come back and think A, B, C and then they see C actually led to Z, mm-hmm. something completely, and that's the answer, not this linear progress. Um, and so, you know, painting is kind of like that. Yeah, and, yeah, there, Ken, Ken Wisson and I had a really good, Ken was a great painter and a, a, a great mind and his his understanding of painting, one of the things he was really strong about was intuition, the intuitive kind of response. And he used to, because he knew a lot of the earlier painters, like Sid Nolan and people like that, um, and, you know, the, he used to say, well, when in doubt, just drop it down. You, you just do something because eventually you can't, you can't intellectualise what's going to happen next. You just have to do something. And often that's a disaster, but out of the disasters comes possibilities, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Picasso said, you know, some people seek, I find. Well, okay, he's being a smart ass, but but he he understood what it was to find something in the paint and in the painting that suggested or evoked what he was really after mm. rather than what he thought he was after. Well, can we talk about the the plein air work Mm. as opposed to the studio work? Now, first of all, I I would like to talk, actually mention the fact that a lot of your work, the plein air work, is from the desert. Yeah. And there are areas that you go to, back to again and again. Can you tell me a bit about your attraction to that and and the areas that you've been to? Well, I I think one of the great things about the desert, on reflection, is that when you first go out there, there's not a lot of, you know, there's not many church steeples or structures that you can use. So so all of a sudden you're, you're caught up in a lot of not muchness. Okay, so how do, how do you make pictures from that? You know, in a European setting, you've got little lanes and, you know, fences and houses and all that. So there's that. But I suppose digressing a bit, I mean, what really blew me away was, I mean, see, Matisse and other artists in Europe, if they wanted to use colour like I use colour now, they would have had, I mean, Matisse had to set it up. You had to paint the room blue and buy beautiful clothes and material and get the girls to dress up and, you know, you couldn't just whip down the road to Morocco any time you wanted, you know. <laughs> you usually right. had to go in a certain time of year and, you know, it was a long trip and da-da-da-da-da. Um, but when I got to the outback, I thought, there's every colour at different times of the day, there's every colour you ever want out here. I mean, it's just 
saturated at some times and enormously subtle and other times. And you could, it doesn't matter what colour you turn up with, it's there somewhere. So, Is that right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, most people probably wouldn't see it. Do you have to no. look for that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you'll look because you're an artist. That's what you're looking for. I mean, I'm a colourist. I, Colour is the first thing I see. I mean, I mean that's prob- that's my bias. There's no doubt about that. I mean, but you know, um, you know where I've been going. Glenys and I've been going recently um, out to uh, Ross River, uh, out to the um, uh, McDonald's, East McDonald's, which is magnificent country. Some of the colour late in the afternoon that hits those rocks, which look reddish, but become luminous in a way that you just could not describe. I mean, in the Kimberleys, I mean, we I've been around a lot. I took American students to Kakadu. I, you know, I've been down the coast in boats. I mean, sometimes the colour is shocking, absolutely shocking. What time of the day do you think it, that most? Oh, for happens? me, it's late afternoon. It, it, recently, I, it was, Glenis and I just had a week on our own um, out out of Alice, and the sun went down, and it was a pretty nice sunset. You know, not fabulous, but really very subtle and very beautiful. But then, as it as the sun disappeared, this reflected light hit the hill behind us, and I mean, that's what I'm trying to work out now. How do I make a colour of that luminosity? And it's just extraordinary. Yeah. And you know, and and. The watercolour in, in Kakadu, the, the the clarity of it in some cases, um, and the shadows of being black. Um, I mean, you know, the Indigenous guys have seen it all. They they pick it up. I mean, um, and it's it's extraordinary. And so the outback. I mean, yeah, that that. I mean, that's why I couldn't live anywhere else in the world. I mean, where am I going to get this? And and you know, I've I go to Fowler's Gap. This place that the university has uh, run and owned for, for years at the other side of Broken Hill, um, uh, to Mutawinji, which is um, Barkindji country, and uh, my mate Badger Bates, who's uh, a, a Barkindji elder, you know, we got to become friends and he taught me how to look at the stars and how to think about Indigenous thinking and spirituality and we just become mates, that's all. And that's amazing. Yeah. No, and, and does that do you find that your connection with the Indigenous artists has changed your work? Oh, crucial, crucial. I mean, you know, if, if the work when I'm dead means anything, is it means that I've been able to, and probably in the last few years, bring together two disparate um, aesthetics or something. One is indigenous, but it's 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 not so much trying to paint like indigenous guys. It's it's how they see the land. What is the what are they seeing? How do they see it? I mean, it sounds very pretentious, but it's kind of the philosophy of looking and thinking, deep thinking. You know, um, um, that I mean, stuff that we have shit on basically, and now we're realizing, hey, you know, this is this is diamonds this is mm. gold and and um, um, yeah I mean the best of it like the best of anything is fabulous I mean I saw some pictures a whole series of barks recently the drill hall oh exquisite and uh, indigenous guy who's probably my age who I've never met Jack Green good on you Jack they are brilliant pictures 
Um, you know, so, and, you know, I've got buddy drawers full of Aboriginal paintings and stuff, mostly on work and paper because I couldn't afford anything else. And not all of it's good, like everything else, but the best of it, the best Indigenous thinking, that's what you really, that's what we need to ask for help with. That's what we need. Well, I suppose one of the things that you already had in common was the fact that you don't paint representationally. No, that's right. And that your work is sits somewhere between the representation yep. and the abstract. It does. And, of course, the Aboriginal artists are just brilliant in yep. that way, to yep. be able to see in a totally yep. different way than yep. the figurative way. Yeah, that's right. Um, so you must have felt this this sort of connection already. Sure, but, but you know, it, it, what I had the problem was was that I was taught in a conventional, if you like, Renaissance kind of manner. Um, not that that was bad, but you know, you 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 learned to work like a European, and and that was fine. That's part of our history, um, and not so good history in any cases. But that kind of thinking, when you come up against oh, the Impressionists, then Cubism, particularly Cubism, probably, um, you realise that hey, look, you know. This way of seeing the world that we've been taught and it has been practised for quite a few hundred years is just one way of seeing the world. The world is not as clear-cut as that. And, um, you know, photographs don't talk about smell and taste and, you know, I mean, and, and artists have tried to do that. How do you, you know, uh, Picasso, when he was giving a bit of a hard time when he'd moved to slightly more abstract paintings, said... Well, you don't ask a bird what song it's singing. No, that's right. So you don't do you don't say, "Oh, is that the uh, concerto by you know? <laughs> yeah. or is that the latest rock and roll tune?" No, you you respond to the beauty, the call, the you know something happens between you and the bird, which is pretty special. Mm. If if you're open to that, if you're not, it doesn't happen. And that's why I think partly why it's almost impossible to put. To talk about art, in a way, well, it, <laughs> what it, we're trying to do right now. No, is, well, is well not of course, it, of course, it is. I mean, and, and and it's one of the problems about writing about. Too. I mean, that's why probably poetry comes closer to drawing or, or painting. I mean, you know, there, there's some peculiar things that happen with painting, uh, being static, and a whole range of things which. You know, music has beginning and end, uh, all sorts of things, and you know that. The more you read, you know, great writers, they they understand that they talk about it, and so you you got to respond to it. So I mean, when I first came back and started painting in the landscape, I'd you know set up and I'd paint that thing in front of me. Now I just go out and say, I'm here. Oh yeah, that looks all right. I'll use that, and I'll use that, and that. Mm-hmm. and and other times, I like these pictures I'm working on now. I sat for guns went for a long walk. Uh, I sat for three or four hours. In one of these ponds, uh, basically on my own for all that time, just looking at the water that's in this pond area, which is funny, it's an English term, isn't it? But a pond area with big, wonderful shadows, enormously luminous rocks with the sun, late sun hitting it, um, the odd bit of tree or grass, some you know, occasionally something else you'd see move. Uh, it's just exquisite. I mean, yeah. you, you, you're trying to make sense of all that 
and pitchers, if they're any good, can. I mean, it, it, but it's it's a struggle, and sometimes you're lucky. Yeah, it's so interesting that you say that because obviously you have painted water and ponds and things like that hundreds of times. Yeah. But you sitting down and observing as if afresh. Yeah. Again. Oh, sure, 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 sure. Because it is, you know, um, there's a book called The Unquiet Landscape by a guy called Neve. It's basically English landscape. But, I mean, he's, you know, he's right and so is Susan Sontag. I mean, the day is never the same. No day is the same. Every day is different. Um, one of the poets said, how, how, did we, how did we not know that every day is a god? Something happens. The water is never the same. It's always the same and always different. That must feel the same when you're actually starting a new painting Absolutely. each time. Absolutely. So you're never feeling as though, oh, I'm just sort of, you know, going through the motions again or... Well, if I do, then I paint over it because that's really bad. But, you know, when you're a younger painter, you know, I mean, you know, I go back to that Philip Guston quote really, you know, um, but when you're a younger painter, you, you know, I mean, I painted a few pictures which I thought were pretty good because it looked a bit Matissean, right? And that was fair enough because I was trying to work out where he's coming from. Um, but when I started to paint more directly in the landscape, I mean, this landscape in the outback here has nothing to do with a European view of the world at all. So you had to kind of, how do I deal with this? Yeah, you know? right. It's a whole new... You had to work it out. Yeah, yourself. yeah. And, yeah. and look, you know, we, we just happened to be... I found a very exciting time because of Indigenous culture coming to the fore and and hopefully a mingling of the best of the West and the rest, as it were, or <laughs> yeah. whatever the saying yeah. goes. Yeah. Well, one of the, I want to talk a bit more about the plein air yeah. work because yeah. in that video that Sean yeah. O'Brien did, I, I you actually mentioned this because when I was watching you paint, you were saying you were purposely um, being slapdash. Yeah. So is that when you're in the field is that is it important for you to keep it really um well slapdash yeah quick um yeah. To, well yeah I mean as as a rule yeah because what you what you're doing is you're actually um not just trying to take in the information but the time of the day which is changing around you so so you know I mean it's not just <laughs> it's just not this objective view of the world is dead duck as far as I'm concerned. People trying to paint like that, I don't know where they're coming from, but it ain't the 21st century. But, you know, look, a perfect example of slapdashery. <laughs> actually, I'm wondering if slapdash sounds a bit derogatory, actually. No, no, well, it doesn't matter. I mean, look, a perfectly good example is that is when – when you're painting and you're trying to do something with sort of, I don't know, maybe too intellectually or something, right, when you're trying too hard, I mean, I'm sure athletes, I mean, it's a creative experience we're trying to talk about, I guess. When you do that, often it looks a bit stilted, right, or a bit too contrived or cliched. I mean, you know, that's the great problem with writers, you know, they write something and they read it and they think, shit, I've read this ten times before by other people. 
Next. So, but when you actually paint something out, if you say, oh, this area is crap, I'm just going to get some white paint painted out. Okay, if when you do that, you're not thinking in the normal way you're thinking because you're just letting it flow. And sometimes that's just painting it out. But sometimes what you've painted out, what you left is so much better because you painted out that lot. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's a it's a kind of way you do things. You, you you must take the risk when it's not working. I mean, Frank Arbuck is a. What did he say about that recently? I read in one of his catalogues. He used the word stonking picture. He said to make a really what I, mean, I think he said great, but he used the term which is I think an English slang to it, stonking, a really stonking picture. He said. What you've got to do how to do that is to paint over a really good painting. That's very scary. That's what it's about. But would you do that? Absolutely. But 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 I've done it so be... many times. But why would you do no there must be something about it that's not working. Sure, sure. But you know, the biggest problem is you've painted a picture, you or in my case, there's one in there that's got five pictures underneath it. Okay, you've painted a picture and it's looking pretty cool, pretty good. Yeah, things are going well. It does feel about a bit about the place. Everything's looking good. And you're putting stuff on it and taking stuff away and you're looking at it and that might go on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And you think, yeah, I really like that picture. I mean, I can show you on that one. Um, I really like the picture. Something it looks a bit, I don't like that bit at the end and yeah um, the more I look at it it's starting to bit a bit no I can't live with that and so I think okay no one will know only me that's the problem so I know that left hand side bit doesn't work and if I change it the whole thing could fall down and sometimes it does so you have to start again so it might be just a small part of the work that is just going to just wreck the whole thing Absolutely. for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh God, that's interesting. Yeah. The total thing has to work in every level, every level. And and the trouble is the more you get practice at finding those things at fault, the more you see them and the more problematic it becomes. So um, Giorgio Mirandi, when he was late in his 80s, who is probably one of my great heroes as an Italian painter of landscapes, particularly his landscapes. Most people know him as still lives, which are yeah, brilliant. But I didn't know he did Oh, landscapes. the landscapes are to die for. They're tiny and they're wonderful. Um, he said, how is it that I've painted all my life and it never gets any easier? And that's right. It doesn't. How can it be? Because you've honed this skill come intuitive thinking looking every great picture is is in your head and saying yeah not that right in corner that's a crappy bit of painting or that color's wrong it doesn't do anything for that other color all those things they come back to haunt you and you that's who you're playing with well composition must be a big thing about that absolutely as well. i mean i that again matisse taught me about composition um and you can see what he painted over. You can see what he was thinking when you look closely. I mean, I always go and look at an angle on the pictures because if they're highly glossed, you can see what he's painted over or whatever. Um, you can see <laughs> yeah. where he's done another move or whatever. Um, but, yeah, and, and, that's, and sometimes you just, I mean, particularly the small works, I now 
have got to the stage, if it really isn't a stonking picture, I just burn it. Do you? Mm. You don't want it hanging around or nope. being able to be no. found? No, or, or I paint it out or paint it over or, uh, I mean, occasionally I've painted it in one, there's a little painting there which is starting to look pretty good at the moment, and I painted it over with a new medium and it went really white and horrible. Oh. So it destroyed the painting anyway. Yeah, that little right. one on the right-hand side. Oh, okay. Uh, these clouds. Up here? Yep. And okay. it went really bad. And so I thought, well, that's the end of it. It's had it. So I just got some white paint and did some doodles, which looked like clouds. And then I thought, hmm, clouds have shadows and shadow of clouds. And, and I mean, I don't know where it's going to go. Yeah, it's, better yeah. than the, the better, it's better than the one that I thought was good underneath it, but it still could be in the ditch. It could be out. Yeah, right. And when will you decide? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I keep looking at them and I keep fiddling with them and some will get better and some will get worse and some by by serendipity and accident and intuitive kind of foolishness or I've turned them upside down mm. or something They're will fantastic. happen. fantastic. I love these ones here. Really yeah, well, they're them. starting to get okay. There's yeah. a couple that – well, there's one that's finished, that one there. The second one. second one. Right. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's finished. Fabulous. I mean, that, well, they're square. Well, what we're looking at yep. is like sort of, well, they're, well, they're square, not all square. Oh, they are much. all square. Square off square. Yeah. That's interesting for a landscape. Yeah. Well, I, I early on, I realised I didn't, I mean, this is sort of, now it doesn't matter, I suppose, but I didn't want them to be romantic landscapes. I knew that from the beginning. And so I, I basically painted on squares. And that stopped me having a long, you know, idea of this long landscape format mm. thing, which was landscape. Mm. You know, I mean, it's yeah, that's right. You hardly, I, you don't often see square landscapes. No. I must say, no. and that must raise its own problems. Oh, it, do, it does. I mean, yeah, it does. I mean, the centre of a, a square is is a really difficult thing to deal with, and a lot of people don't don't go there because it's too damn difficult. But it's it, but again, it's like the edge. The Annie Dillard thing, it's the problem is what may be the answer. Well, that's interesting that you talk about the centre of the work because cause the trees are a very important thing with yeah. your work. It yeah. comes up a lot yeah. in your works. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm thinking of that your Gallipoli Prize painting oh, that yeah. you won the Gallipoli yeah. Prize, which I think is called Gallipoli Evening. Oh, so, yeah, I think it is. Uh, something Evening. Something, something yeah, yeah. I think it's Gallipoli Evening. Yeah. And uh, – that has that was that was really interesting because it was like this large golden expanse yeah. and then like a blue at the top and blue yeah. at the bottom, but the trees right in the middle, yeah. more or less. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's really that's tricky. Yeah, it is something well, like that. But it's well, interesting that it's interesting how it balances out though with yeah, all but, the other parts. Well, of the that's painting. what you've got to do. I mean, and 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 in fact, you know, uh, every great artist who ever made a decent painting knows that, that that that's the tension between, you know, I mean, the, the classic thing which I was taught, which is fair enough, if you put, you know, a big object right in the middle of a, of a painting, what you do is divide into two roughly equal halves and that's really boring. So, so okay, but at the same time, the boring is the dangerous part and the most interesting thing. How do I, how do I take on that challenge? And how has everyone else taken on that challenge? And what have they done with it? And how have they made that work? Just moving it slightly to one side or tilting it or producing a colour somewhere else which takes you out of that 
symmetrical and asymmetrical kind of thing. You know, I mean, hard to do it with architecture because you want it to stand up, but um, (laughs) with painting. Well, I mean, with that tree, it's just slightly like the foliage is slightly to the side, and but they're very subtle. Things, oh yeah, you sure. Know, which which makes such a hopefully, huge difference. Hopefully, yeah, yeah, right, of and course. I'm, and I'm sure that works with color as well. Oh yeah, it does. Oh yeah, colors for me is the main game, really. Um, um, but yes, of course, and and that you know you'll learn that from you know endless practice and and lots of looking at great pictures yeah. and saying, okay, what are they doing here? Why, is, you know, why is Piero della Francesca? Um, put Christ right in the centre, but the angels are just putting their wing behind that, which takes you back to the background, which brings you forward and back to the reflection of the water under his feet. I mean, I go back to the National Gallery, I look at that picture, it never fails to amaze me. That's mm. such an exquisite thing, mm. this human thing, <laughs> made thing. So do you do you find when you're looking at composition, uh, it's it's an instinctive feel that you go by, or do you have rules that you sort of like? I don't I don't know what the rules would yeah, be, but yeah. there are but there are rules in oh, art, you know, of. that can be. Yeah, the the rules are more or less things which um, are handed down to to learn to make pictures. Um, in a kind of reasonable, rational kind of way, which pictures don't work like. <laughs> <laughs> no, so so so. Look, you know, I mean, yeah, rules. I mean, there's sort of rules because you've got, a, you know, a frame. You've got a place to work. It's it, you know, outside the frame. You're not responsible for it, but everything in that picture, every dot and mark and movement and direction and colour, yeah, I mean that that's crucial. Yeah. Um, and so you go and look at great pictures and think, okay, what have they done here? Oh, that's pretty tricky. I see what they've done there. I mean, you know, one of the things I use for teaching every now and again is a Picasso painting. They're based on figures, figures from theatre, actually. And basically use them to, to make pictures for, for quite a long time. And one that he did, um, what he was doing was showing you how far cubism had come in its context of ambiguity, okay? And it's, I mean, even he said it was a, one of the best things he ever did at that stage. And, and it is. I mean, but really what he's doing is showing everyone else in the art world at that time what they didn't know and what he did mm. and how you could make it work. Mm. And so the black is not only the background but it's the foreground and it's the same black. I mean, the ambiguity of the picture keeps you guessing all the time. And yet it's a whole thing. It all works. It works on every other level. And the ambiguities are piled upon ambiguity. But it's not misreading or bad painting. Because if you're going to be inconsistent, you've got to be consistently inconsistent. And that's what he was. And that's what he taught me. 
So how would you use that sort of thing in your own work? Well, well, because, well, in several ways. I mean, in just in perception or seeing the world. I mean, you know, there are there are times when you see things which in in the real world which are completely ambiguous. Mm. You can't read them. Mm. I mean, Giacometti's figures. You know, I mean, how far away do you see a person walking down the road when you're not sure it's male or female, or back to front or is it walking towards you or away from you? Yeah. There's something really peculiar going on visually. Um, and, you know, reflections are a great thing, aren't they? I mean, they are, what are they? I mean, there's shadow and there's reflections, there's things under the water, there's things uh, falling on top of the water. Um, they are like clouds, they're abstract, but they're real. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so so it, it's 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 what the poets do. They question reality. They question, mm. you know. So it's about not spelling it out, and so leaving it to the sure, yeah. sure it is, and 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 it's an ongoing question. Yeah, I mean that's why otherwise it becomes a cliche. You're just repeating yourself. I mean, that's one of the problems of the art world, isn't it? Again, I've got to be careful. I don't get sued here, but. Um, <laughs> You know, if if you're painting a picture, like some of our Australian artists who are dead now um, might have painted a picture, um, and, you know, it's a pretty good picture, but, you know, that bottom left-hand side is really bad, you know, so I have to fix that. And then someone comes into the studio and says, hey, mate, what a fab, I love this picture. I just adore it. I've got to have it. How much do you want for it? Just name your price. Here's the checkbook. Do you say, uh, bottom left-hand side, mate, i got to fix that? And do you, well, yeah, you have to say no. That's the problem. You have to take the risk of buggering the picture and not having the sale, not having someone rave about it and just saying, look, not finished, sorry. Miranda used to, his sales worked in the end was he gets a canvas, someone comes in wants to buy a picture, he says, okay, Here's the canvas. What's your name? Write it on the back. He said, I'll give you a, a phone call when it's finished. <laughs> right. That's it. Yeah, yeah. And so he's, he's, in other words, it's, the artist has to have integrity. That's the word. And, and probably humility as well. And do you have um, difficulty knowing when a painting is finished? Yeah, yeah, you do. I mean, this painting I've got up in the studio at the moment, which we can't see, but you might like to see later on. Um, yeah, that that I because I really had the place I painted. It was really um, indelibly etched in my thinking and memory of it. Um, I thought I'd got it from in, in nearly the first go. It's like the first lines of poetry or something. And then I thought, yeah, I, I, there's some great bits in it, partly bits I tried to paint out and actually changed the colour of the paint by accident. That's great. Oh, look at that, that beautiful creamy yellowy stain against the white on that corner which picks up with a white somewhere else and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and then I thought, yeah, but it still looks a bit weak and the composition's still a bit floppy and and so I you know I use collage a lot so the there's this is a bit unusual for me that many bits but there's one two three four bits of torn up 
paper stuck on mm. that, that made this work. And the last one is that little green bit, right, because the, the white going up the back there was the luminous white coming from the light in this chasm, um, yeah. but it connected with the white behind it, which, which um, it, it was an awkward shape. But the little green blob there that I've put up on top has just held that back spatially and changed the notion of that white against that slightly creamier white. Yeah, right. And it worked. And what, would you – you wouldn't paint that in. Like is it uh, No, no, no. I mean um, I probably couldn't, to be honest, for whatever skills or not. Um, I probably couldn't um, and – um, I don't need to because I can glue that on and, again, it's on, you know, a panel, aluminium panel, and I can glue it on with stuff that never come off and it's acid-free and, you know, all the, the, the things you're supposed to care about, which which I do. Um, so, so Well, I love the collage element. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes I will paint something that looks like collage, a shape, and that's just another play with ambiguity, really. Is it mm. collage? Is it not? Is it? Is it the reflection of a tree, or is it just the tree? Is it, yeah, you know? And I think, and also the beauty of the collage is that you can play around with it so much before you commit. That's true. Um, and my psychologist, I, when I first started going to my wonderful doctor, um, I explained the process of painting, where I moved things infinitesimally around for ages and ages. Yeah. If that's what artists do, I can see why you're coming to see me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you will spend a long time doing that? Oh, sometimes for days and days. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, gorgeous. I mean, you know, you, you, you see, I mean, this, this one so far, and I haven't glued those down yet, you'll note, this one is, I think it's just right. Okay, mm. but I'll sit there and look at it for days and days and possibly months, <laughs> and think about maybe if that was just a little bit small. And occasionally I go and cut an edge off and make it just that little bit small or that dark edge or whatever. Oh. Yeah, or, or you know, uh, that's no good. It's a cut edge, not a torn edge, not a scissored edge, not an edge which is. Torn backwards, which gives you a white if you've got a white back, or torn the other way. Um, you know, so all those things count. So if it's not, it could be just too soft, too sharp, too hard, too, too mechanical. Too sometimes, though, you know, sometimes it just happens to be a nice discord or something. Anyway. Yeah, right. And you were saying that this is a rare commission. You yeah, don't like I don't. I don't do commissions, but um, I, I got friendly with some people where I was, te- where I was teaching, and he was a pretty interesting dude. And um, I was just explaining to him about how the art world functions because his his partner's been painting, and and um, and he said, "Do you do commissions?" Because oh, I think he's quite a wealthy business guy and engineer. Actually, he's a smart dude. And I just said, no, I don't usually do them and blah, blah, and, um, and he said, well, you know, why don't we do one? And I said, yeah, I haven't done one for years and I'll see how it goes. And I said, you pay me for it and 
the gallery can keep the money, and if it doesn't work, I'll give you your money back. <laughs> but I've got to paint another one, so he has a choice of one of the two. Oh, right. I, it's just, it does give you pressure. It puts pressure oh, on yeah, you. Oh, yeah, yeah, you see, and that's sort of why I wanted it. I wanted to see is I had, hadn't done it for such a long time. Is the pressure worth it? Is it? Is that something that I need or don't need? It's been too long. It's sort of like, you know, not having coffee for a month and thinking, <laughs> ooh, I, mm, can I live without it any longer or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so, you were, so it was really seeing whether it was going to be a good thing for you yeah, to have that pressure. yeah. Yeah. I think it's a great painting. Well, I think it's a great painting yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I think it's a good painting. I, I, great is someone else's call. But I <laughs> well, think you it's scratched a, in as well, yeah, like, yeah. which is another interesting yeah, part yeah, of your yeah, work, yeah, is yeah, the drawing I, aspect of it. It is. It's, it's drawing in, into it and, and work. I mean, the nice thing about working on aluminium, you can scratch, in a sense, really deep into the paint and still get that light coming through. I mean, you know, Matisse. It's yeah, just, yeah. I just pinched it. Um, but, but you know, I mean, it, it works because, you know, those sometimes even within a very dark shadow, there are all sorts of other things going on in that the experience of that. And, and it's there momentary, the light changes, it's gone. So trying to pick up something of that momentary something is what the painting can do. Now, you're a great art educator. You've been teaching people how to paint for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And, well, you know, I was trying to do anyway. Students love you. Um, now, I wanted to ask, I always like asking my guests who are teachers as well, what are the most common mistakes they see with students? I think trying to be an artist at all. <laughs> That's a real, you know. Do you want your children to be an artist? Mm, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm I, you know I'm still teaching because I'm still trying to earn a living. <laughs> <laughs> it's not you know it's not a good look. I remember talking to an art critic a few years ago, and I, I said, "Well, look, you know, I, I I don't think it's a lot to ask." And that stage, I was about sixty. I said, "By the age of sixty, I spent all this time you know, in order to get a full time job." <laughs> <laughs> And and he said, "Yeah, I get your point. I mean, it's true, <laughs> but but you know, on the teaching level, I'm, look, I, I think probably wanting a set of rules to make pictures. Yeah, right. So you never teach in that way. You don't ever say. Well, I mean, I tell them some of the pitfalls. Yeah, of what they have done or what they might find, um, and and." And, you know, I can show – mainly I just show them other artists' work. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Ross Laurie and I both teach together sometimes and we actually have quite a lot of fun because we, we we joke about our own practice and the stupid things we've done and we can talk to students about how stupid we've been. And so that's quite funny and fun. Um, but, but you know, a lot of those things you've got to do. You've got to make all these mistakes to find out, hmm, okay, yeah, now I see why that's a great painting in the, in the National Gallery and mine's not. I, yeah. mean, I mean, basically, you know, the mantra is that I don't want them to paint anything other than we want to know what they paint like. We don't want them to paint like anyone else. Yeah. Right. That's, that's the goal, to try to paint like you and how you see things and what you 
like and find and stuff. Look, I've had I've had students just recently had a lady who um, I won't go too far into it, but look, it was quite an experience of her going out away from the city to serious bush landscape outback serious outback um but to her credit it took a couple of days to get over the whole thing because it was real it is confronting mm. you're 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 living in a city look i've had students i've had students that come back to me and said you know that's the first time i've ever been i've ever seen the sunrise I said, what do you mean? She said, oh, I've lived in Korea all my life. I've lived in an apartment. I've never seen the sunrise. She said, I've seen it on television. Yeah. I've, I've had students come out and say, that's the first time I've ever been, you know, 30-year-olds, first time I've ever been alone in my life. I've sent them out for a walk on their own, which really? I don't do much anymore because of health and safety. But yeah. I, I used to say, <laughs> all right, here's the deal. You take matches, water, some food. You walk out till lunchtime and you have your lunch and then you walk back the same way. That way you probably won't get lost, but <laughs> you're on your own. And, people, and no painting, just, just no, to just be to by yourself. Yep. And what's the idea of that? Well, because you've got to actually confront the, the real world without everybody distraction under the sun. And you've got to actually be on your own. And that's... City dwellers, that's a really heavy-duty experience. It actually is. I don't think I've been alone for ages, except in my house. Yeah, yeah, but but we're talking about out in, you know, possibly lost in (laughs) whoop-whoop, you know, (laughs) somewhere that your only way back is because you've sort of got an idea where you came from. That's why you do it. Yeah. Um, And it's confronting, it's exciting, it's daunting, Um. You know, and that's why a lot of Indigenous guys think we're all nuts. And I mean, that's for them is just normal. Normal. Yeah. And guys who, you know, elders who know what it's like, that's how they, you know, deep, they talk about deep, deep listening, going out for walking and just being. Um, And, um, yeah, uh, yeah, and then you, you you hear things, you hear the birds, because you you know you you got your trap shut. You're not talking all the time like me. <laughs> um, it's all that stuff. Well, that's right, and your senses, your other senses, take over. That's right, and I and probably you see differently too. Well, well, you see things that you wouldn't have seen normally, and you you become more aware of your the sound of your footprints, and. You see your footprints, and you're the only footprints. Um, I mean, probably the more interesting uh, philosopher that talks about this is um, Martin Buber. He wrote a book called um, I, Thou, and he he postulates this idea of, of you know, uh, one of the – I've used one of his quotes before. It's quite a long one, but basically – He's saying, okay, um, basically we see a tree and, you know, we sort of know something about its type or its kind, its weight, what it does. And, of course, we're knowing all this stuff now about trees, of how they communicate, how they protect each other, how all sorts of extraordinary things, how, how, you know, in the northern hemisphere, some of the forests are actually moving north because 
they know it's getting too hot for them in the south, if you like, and so those trees die off. They're actually only sending their descendants north. I had no idea yep. about that. So you've got all this stuff that you can read, but you're out there in this stuff. And, and you, as he said, there are times when the tree's just a tree. Other times it's part of the universe in a sense equal to you. And you're equal to it that instead of an I it, it is an I thou experience. Now, okay, for a lot of people that might sound pretty esoteric or something, but people have had those experiences. They just don't talk about them. Mm. And and Indigenous people know that only too well, you know. I mean, that's why we've had, you know, in the West and the East, the sages, the the the, the saints, you know, go out into these extraordinary places, you know, monasteries, live in away from all the distractions of the world in general because just around the corner is something that they're not expecting, something happens. And, of course, you know, I suppose we, we then fall into philosophy and metaphysics and theology, which I'm quite happy to fall into, but... but Paintings are about that. I mean, Philip Guston, you know, uh, I guess because partly because he was Jewish, not that I think he was a great Jewish practitioner, but, you know, he said in the end, making a picture is a mystery because we don't really know quite when it happened, how it happened, because half the time we're just in the zone of playing with paint like kids do and something happens and you look at it and think, God, did I do that? I hope so. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. That's what it's about. Yeah, exactly. Well, talking about um, the act of painting, Mm. when you come to the studio, I'm always interested in what an artist's routine is and what they need to get to happen to get into the flow of painting. Uh, Usually I have to not have to worry about whether I can pay that bill that I've just got for the paintings that I'm working on or <laughs> or um, whether I'm going to live another 20 years so do I need to get rid of all those things I've kept which are still bad and I really should dump. <laughs> um, and what <laughs> uh, – look, uh, I, you know, um, not all jokes aside, probably all of that, but I, I just want to have time to start to paint and see what happens, mm. okay? And, you know, I used to think that I had a good memory. What I now know is when I paint, it elicits something in my memory which I can't bring back without painting. So you'll remember things that you... I uh, saw so 20 you... years ago. Yeah, right. As clear as a bell. But, but only because the picture has made it clear. I haven't seen it clear and then tried to paint it. I've just done stuff. And usually what happens is, this is slightly unusual, this one, but usually what happens is I think, ah, okay, what am I going to paint? All right, um, yeah, well, I've just been to Bowers Gap and and I'm painting on that dam. I'll do a dam picture. So, you know, I start to do this kind of reflection and dam thing and, and all of a sudden it looks like, oh, that looks like down the coast. It looks like those rocks. And, oh, well, yeah, that's what it is. It's really down the coast. <laughs> and I'm painting this down the coast picture and then I think, no, no, it's not convincing, is it? No, no. And 
well, what is it? Oh, I know where it is. It's out in that place we stayed. Yeah, that's where it is because I can see it's that crazy water hole that had this really odd grass in the front of it. Yeah, that's what it is. That's what it is. Yeah. Well, I'm very excited that in only a few weeks' time you're going to have this magnificent survey exhibition at Drill Hall Gallery in Canberra, which Indeed. is one of my favourite gallery spaces, It's actually. a wonderful space and they're really, uh, Terence and Tony and Anne-Marie, I mean, they, they are a great partnership in making sure that people get to see stuff that they won't get to see anywhere else often. That's very true. They've had so many brilliant exhibitions yep. there. It's yep. absolutely fabulous. Yep. And this show is going to have work of yours over the last three decades out of about five decades yeah. of work, yeah. yep. isn't it? Yeah. Um, so is it mainly paintings? Uh, yeah, it is, and sculpture, some sculptures as well, um, loosely called sculptures. Um, they've made things yeah. in two, three, and relief dimensions. Um uh, yeah, so they're going to be there um, and a whole lot of small works that haven't been shown before, which I showed you before. Mm, it's a box of Just beautiful on that eight, Yupo paper. Yeah, yeah, on a lot of it's Yupo. on Yupo, this, this synthetic paper, which I love it because the white comes through in a particular way and it's, it doesn't crinkle and it doesn't get wet and it doesn't despoil. And the paint sits on it in a, yeah, it in a does. certain way, well, doesn't it's, it? Well, they're both polymers of one sort, so they're... It clings to the surface, but it do, it does everything that I want in my painting on aluminium. So it's a perfect foil for what I've done, and and the things I've done on it I couldn't have done on any other surface. So mm. yeah, that's great. They're so, great works. I love those. Yeah. Um, and there's going to be a catalogue coming yep. out as well. The show's also going to Orange Regional Gallery and SH Irvine. It is. So it it's is. going to be. Travelling around the yep. country, thank goodness, because yep. it's going to be absolutely fantastic. I've seen a lot of the works that are going in. Um, and there's a book coming out yeah, is. too yeah, next year, whole... so that can't wait for that. Yeah, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting, exciting. I mean, it's a whole catastrophe. <laughs> You know, it's like, you know, it's a coffee table book or something. I don't know. Yeah, well, I cannot wait to see it. Well, thank you. Idris, and congratulations um, in advance. And it's been such a privilege to be sitting here in your studio amongst these beautiful works. And and thank you for telling me about your wonderful life. Oh, thanks. It was great fun. What a fabulous artist. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Idris Murphy. Idris also has a solo show coming up at Mitchell Fine Art Gallery in October and he is represented by King Street Gallery in Sydney. He's also part of the group show Earth Canvas, uh, which will be opening at the National Museum of Australia soon and which will exhibit work by artists responding to regenerative farming. And details of those shows are on the website talkingwithpainters.com. Talking with Painters is, as you probably know, on social media. Mostly I am on Instagram, but I'm also on Facebook, Twitter and TikTok. Um, so join me there if you can. And of course, also there's the YouTube channel, which you can subscribe to for free. And it has over 160 videos of the artists which are on this podcast. Thanks for listening. And I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. I think you've got to be open to the possibilities of disaster and and ecstatic joy or at the two ends or the possibility of things happening which you never thought of, which you can claim as your own.
Mm. Um, but really, I mean, the only reason that you can boast about your pictures, really, is that you made something that was pretty good and it was pretty good because the things happened which were accidental in some form or another and all you did was acquiesce to them. You said, yes, that's right. It's, it's shown me what is right and I just have to say yes to it. Okay. I mean, that's not that easy to do because, you know, everything else, all the arrows are coming in, which says, is it any good? Will you get paid for it? Uh, Is this worth looking at? Um, Why are you going out on a limb with this one? You don't need to go out on a limb. Yes, you do. So there's a constant kind of anxiety at one level, a constant um, rethinking of what you are trying to do in one sense. Um, and, you know, you've also got all these other great painters saying to you, eh, not bad, keep trying, you know, you might get there. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, and, and you know, um, as soon as you get into a sense where you think you're doing well, you're, you're in deep trouble. Mm. 